Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and our text, which we are going to be ministered to by the Lord this morning, comes from verses 10 through 13. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you somewhere. I'd encourage you to grab that. Go to page 382. I think it's on page 382. Uh, encourage us to follow along in the Bible to see God's words for yourself. It's our custom here to preach through books of the Bible, to explain the text of the Bible, and to not use it as um, maybe a springboard into just talking about whatever we want to talk about. Maybe like 30 seconds of theology for Super Bowl Sunday or whatever, right? So we're going to be back in Ecclesiastes. This is a interesting book. Um, maybe you're even having a hard time finding it. So just open your Bible to the middle. It'll probably fall open to Psalms, and then you just go to the right, go through Proverbs, and then you're going to land there in Ecclesiastes, this wisdom book. If you found your way there, Go ahead and please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word as our custom here. I'll read um, verse 9 as well as it's kind of a linking verse into our verse. The context is Solomon chapter 8 begins to talk about the great benefit of wisdom. As you can see the beginning of chapter 8, he talks about a man's wisdom makes his face shine. It makes him happy, so we want to now look and see how he applies this uh, wisdom to various spheres in the world. So draw your attention, please, to verse 9 as I begin to read. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not carried out speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray briefly. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Help us with a clear mind uh, to examine your word and to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit as we examine this pervasive problem in the world of injustice that we see all around us. Help us to think clearly and rightly about the world in which we live and help us to be transformed by your word. And if there are here, those here that aren't Christians, God, I pray that you would use the sense of justice that is within them to bring them to the truth of the gospel and to make them Christians this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> it's not very often that you would see a pastor give pastoral advice to somebody that would actually tell them to break one of God's commands, right? It's, uh, it'd be a strange thing. Yet that is exactly what R.C. Sproul, who many of you know is one of my heroes, did um, when he was on a panel and at a big conference. There was a panel discussion, and of course people can put in questions. And some, somebody put in this question. They said, uh, 
R.C., uh, my brother says that he is an atheist and he doesn't believe in God and therefore he doesn't believe in right and wrong. He doesn't believe in any moral truths of right and wrong. What should I do to help to share the gospel with him? And without hesitating, I mean, he didn't even think about it. R.C. Sproul said, steal his wallet. And everybody just laughed, right? Because everybody knows what, what would happen if he did it. If he stole the brother's wallet, what would immediately happen? He would start, he would say, he would start, you know, like he would be on the prowl looking for who stole his wallet. He would be angered. He'd have the sense of wrong that somebody did something wrong to him and he would need justice. He'd want his wallet back. And so you can't escape this sense that we all have this sense of justice in us. And that's what he's saying. But it's, a, it's an odd bit of pastoral advice, isn't it? But it reminds us that every single person that's ever lived has this innate sense of justice. It's built into who we are as people. And because we have the sense of justice, we already instinctively know when there has been an injustice done, especially if it's been done to you. We all have it. To the parents in here, as soon as your child is able to string together words and to make a coherent sentence, what are one of the first sentences they will ever put together? What is it? That's not fair. Right? That's not fair. It's one of the first things that a child learns to say. They recognize the way things are. It's not fair. You guys, you guys aren't there yet because you haven't had kids. But you'll be there soon enough when they get a little bit older. It's not fair. No, we want justice built into everything. And, and we can't escape it, the sense that we have. This desire for justice, this need for justice, uh, this sense of fairness, this oughtness, the way things ought to be, um, it needs to be thought through clearly and it needs to be thought through biblically because it reveals some very important truths about humanity, the world, uh, and who God is. Now Solomon is going to help us do just that this morning. He's going to help us to think through the sense of justice and injustice that we see in the world. I'm going to reorient you to this book because it has been a while and we have so many new people here. That I don't think they might have even heard a sermon on Ecclesiastes yet. Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. If you've never read it straight through, I'd encourage you to do that. And the first thing you're going to discover is that this is a very unique book. You, some people even wonder, why is this book in the Bible? And you might come to that conclusion because if you give it a surface level reading, you might think that he is kind of like there's no meaning in anything. There's no meaning in life. There's no point in anything. Uh, but that's not really what he's doing. Uh, this book contains the reflections of an old man toward the end of his life, Solomon. If you look at the very beginning of your book, we're told that this is the son of David the king in Jerusalem, Solomon, who is said to be the wisest man to ever live. Um, and what he does in his old life is he reflects, in his old age, he reflects back on his life. And what he's kind of examining comes out in the very first uh, verses. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So here it is. He's asking this question, what's the purpose of life? 
what gives life meaning, what can actually give me gain. The word gain you could think of as like final, total satisfaction. And so he goes on this big journey. In the very beginning in particular, he emphasizes how he searched for the meaning of life in everything um, except for God. So think if you could, I mean, we all have this sense of there's just kind of something lacking in my life, that something, if I just found that one thing, it would really fill me up. But now pretend you're one of the most powerful men on the face of the earth. You have an unlimited amount of resources. You can literally do anything you want. You could try anything on earth you ever wanted to try. And so you did it. That's what Solomon did. He tried everything. He tried money. He tried power. He tried fame, entertainment. He tried women, sex, lust. He tried alcohol. Uh, anything that you can think of that people would still try today, uh, he already tried it. He even tried wisdom, to pursue wisdom as an end in itself, to see if that could fill him up. And nothing could fill him up. And so he has this word vanity for it. Vanity, vanity of vanity. All is vanity. And vanity has a range of meanings. It can mean a number of things. It can mean like something like meaningless. It can mean fleeting, like a vapor, like your life is a vapor. It's a vanity. It's here, you're here today, you're gone tomorrow. Vanity can also mean something like absurd. So context dictates how he is using it, of course. But he also has another phrase. If you want to go ahead and chase the meaning of life and pleasure in the world, he says, um, it's like a chasing after the wind. You can't chase the wind. You can't catch the wind. And so he's exposing to us, so, so you don't have to try the journey. Here's man that's already tried it. And it's all, he says, vain. Well, he's also given us some great wisdom. He's talked about how greed will absolutely destroy you and leave you absolutely lonely and miserable if that becomes your God. But we've had great reflections on things like worship as he reflects on temple worship. He's, he's taught us how to live in a fallen world with uh, fallen governmental leaders. We've learned that as well. And so now he's going to turn his attention, verses 10 to 13, to help us to apply wisdom and to understand that in the world, in the fallen world, emptiness east of Eden, um, injustice pervades society. And he's going to help us to think through that. So it's difficult to outline Solomon's texts in Ecclesiastes. Very difficult. But so that we can have something to track along with, I think we see clearly in this text, if you're taking notes, there are three movements of his thought. Three movements of thought regarding the problem of injustice. So that's what we're going to see this morning. Three movements of thought regarding the problem of injustice in the world. Now, here's why you shouldn't just tune out today. Um, you should lock in and not tune out. It does take active involvement and active work. You become a participant with me, meaning that you don't daydream and you don't look at other things. You actually have to look at the text, follow along, process it, understand it. Why should you be a participant with me as we go through this text? Because everyone in this world, you included, experiences injustice. You do. You probably already have, and you will. Um, and what do we want? We want answers. When there's injustice, we want answers. And, and we might not ever get the answers. So it becomes very frustrating. But in addition to wanting just answers as to why maybe these things happen, uh, we want justice 
to be done for us and maybe even for the things we see in society. And it might look to us upon first examination that that's never going to happen. There's never going to be justice done. For whatever happened to you or what's been done to you, it may seem that there's never going to be justice. You're never going to get satisfaction for this wickedness that has been done to you. And Solomon, he helps us to gra- grapple with this reality. This is not a unique thing to us. This pervades all of humanity. And we want those answers. So this, this text is important. It's also important for us because if you don't get this right, if you don't examine this problem of injustice right, this inbuilt sense of justice that is in you by the grace of God will actually work against you. It will work against you as you begin to doubt that God's, God is good. You may even begin to doubt that God is just at all or that he even cares about us or the world or you in particular. And that may even lead you into doubt God's existence at all. So we want to be careful and examine injustice biblically so that we can understand this, this sense of justice that we all already have by God's grace. But if we shape our minds according to how I think Solomon wants to lead us to shape them, it will become a great blessing to us. It'll become a great blessing. So here's my purpose. I'm going to walk through Solomon's reflection on justice and injustice so that we might gain a better understanding of how to live in this world, in the fallen world in which we live, and how we might better understand our natural inclination toward justice and see that it is actually a grace of God that he has given to us so that we might have hope to persevere in this world, persevere to the end. So today, let's look at these three movements of justice. If you have your text, go back to your text, three movements of justice. The first one, look back at your text, verse 10. There is the observation of injustice. This is the first thing that he does in the text is he makes an observation of injustice. Then I saw, there's the observation, I saw the wicked buried. He goes back to a funeral. Solomon seems to have a thing where you can gain a lot of wisdom by paying attention to funerals. If you remember that, you'd have to go back several weeks. Uh, You can learn a lot about life by going to a funeral. And so he observes a funeral. He observes a common occurrence in our world. it's, It's likely that we should understand this as linked to what he already said previously about, remember, governmental leaders. That's why I started reading at verse 9. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. There is a wicked leader, powerful man, maybe governmental leader, maybe just in the civilian world has power, influence, maybe because of his business venture, but he's a wicked man and he gets buried. He has power over other men to their hurt. While he's alive, if you look at your text, he used to go in and out of the holy place, this wicked man. Moved freely about. We ought to never forget that just because people go to church, that doesn't mean that they're not absolutely wicked. Wicked people love to go to church and to be religious. There's nothing a wicked person loves more than to fool everyone by spraying a nice, lovely bouquet of religiosity upon their dead corpse of wickedness as they live on the earth. And people are more than happy to oblige them because they're powerful and influential. So they move in and out among the church and the religious fears. They're wicked. There's no justice in the world because everyone knows they're wicked. And even everyone in the religious world welcomes them in. 
I couldn't help but think of presidential candidates. I just couldn't help it. The presidential candidates every single election cycle. Let's okay, start with Donald Trump. Donald Trump, he got very religious all of a sudden, didn't he? Very religious when he ran for president. And many people are fooled by him and still fooled. A serial adulterer, immoral man, greedy. How many times are we, are we warned of the danger of greed? Greedy man, allowed behind a pulpit, a pulpit of churches. You couldn't pay me $10 million to let Donald Trump stand in this pulpit. Would never happen. Or how about Biden? How about Biden? This may be the, the most close example I could think of to this text, okay? Because the people know about the wickedness and they still welcome them. Perhaps no politician in recent history has done more to incarcerate black men than Joe Biden. Joe Biden, his 1994 crime, crime bill, which led to disproportionately incarceration of black men in this country, decimating multi-generations in the black community over minor drug possessions, ransacked the black community. But where do we find Biden? Where was he found celebrated when he ran for president? He's found celebrated in the black church. It's like, it's like everybody had amnesia. They just forgot all of a sudden about what he spent his entire political career doing. There's this great hypocrisy involved with the wicked that they can just forget about it all of a sudden. And Solomon, he observes this phenomenon. But death comes for everyone, and that's kind of where Solomon takes us. He observes his funeral. So maybe... And death will finally have justice, right? Maybe finally when he dies, everybody will say, what a piece of human garbage this man was. Look at the injustice he did, and no one will celebrate his life. No one, no one will come to that man's funeral. He'll just die a lonely, miserable death. But that's not what Solomon observes. He observes that in the very place, in the city where he had done such wicked things, even in death, this man is praised. So it seems justice doesn't ever come. A wicked man is praised in his life and in his death in the city where he had done wicked things. People have amnesia and they just celebrate his life all the more. I'm telling you, Solomon, Solomon understands the human condition like maybe no one else I've read in the scriptures other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing the things that he observes his ability to apply wisdom to the world. And we see, that's why we love the book of Ecclesiastes. We're perplexed by its strangeness, but no matter when we read it, we say, he just he's explains the world I live in and he explains my own heart. And this is a vanity. He says, look back at your text, this is vanity. Now, what does he mean? Does he mean this is like a breath? It's fleeting? No. Does he mean it's meaningless? No. He means this is absurd. This is absolutely absurd. And we see its absurdity, right? We see its absurdity. The people that suffered under injustice and w the wickedness of this ruler are willing to celebrate him in his death. I mean, you just think about the death of Joseph Stalin. Do you know the millions of people that he, that he murdered and killed? He had one of the largest funerals on earth as people in a cult-like atmosphere worshipped the man at his death. Humanity and our fallenness, we are vain and absurd. 
It's illogical. This is an illogical occurrence. There are people in this world who it seems to us when we make these observations, they are wicked and they get away with it in life. And when they die, they get away with it in death. People still praise them. At the end of their life, nothing happens. They get an honorable burial, just like, you know, some general who served his entire life in great honor and distinction, doing nothing but sacrificing himself for those people under him and the community in which he lived. And a wicked man gets the same burial as a good man. So we observe pervasive injustice in our society. And he, he kind of brings us to that. He brings us into examining injustice, right? provoking our thoughts about it. The reality that injustice exists in the world, and not just that, the type of injustice that it seems there's never going to be justice for. And we live in the same world. There is injustice all around us. Perhaps you've even been the victim of injustice, and you think it's never... There's not ever going to be anything done because of it. It's everywhere in our society. I already mentioned several examples from our political world. But you think about one of the greatest injustices we could all observe here in the West. I was trying to think, what are the greatest injustices that we could see? I think one of the greatest injustices that we see that are par- that's very perplexing is the, the fatherlessness problem in our, in our culture, you know, just my, my children's friends, the number of them whose fathers abandoned their, their children is mind-boggling to me. Mind-boggling. And I mean like abandoned them and they never had anything to do with them. They don't even know their fathers. And I'm not talking about as we would think, right? We think, oh, that's like an inner-city Chicago problem. I'm talking about a Lawton problem. Lawton Cash, Fort Sill area problem. And they make, the, they make jokes about it to try to, like, to like help them cope with the idea that their father abandoned them. It's a grotesque, immoral injustice for a young man or woman to grow up and not know their father because their father abandoned them. But it's not just fathers. Of course, the same thing happens with women. Women do the same thing. It used to be kind of like a man thing, but now women do the same thing. This is part of our self-centered society where these type of injustices occur and young, young people grow up without either a father or maybe they grow up without a mother or seeing very little of either one because there are crazy, th- you know, we can just leave each other for whatever reason and the children are the ones that suffer. And who gets justice for the children, right? The, the parents are too self-absorbed to think about what they've done. It's heartbreaking. But the greatest injustice in America, without a doubt, is the murder of preborn children. Without a doubt, that blood cries out for justice, and it's coming. Even with Roe v. Wade being overturned, the amount of preborn children here, murdered here, is staggering. Staggering. You can drive right now, one minute down the road, and buy an abortion in a pill from Walgreens and take that even though Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And it appears there never will be justice. That's the observation we make, that wickedness is just everywhere. There's never going to be justice for these things. We've all done what Solomon has done here. We've all observed it. It's all bothered us, and we're dissettled in our spirits, and it causes us some great perplexity and agitation. We observe how many people live and die 
without ever facing the consequences for the things that they've done? Maybe you have had something awful happen to you. You want justice? Maybe the person lived and died. They're gone. You're never going to get justice. But we have to continue to think about it. We can't just stop there. Right? He brings us to think of it. So first there's the observation of the problem of injustice. And then we have to move on and continue with his following his train of thought. And we see second, the perceived problem of justice delayed. The perceived problem of justice delayed. Look at verse 11. Look back at your text. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Here's where we have to be careful. Because I think, I think many times we read this verse, these are one of these good ones that we can like, you know, pull out and examine just on its own and say, yeah, there's a lot of truth revealed there, but if we just pull it out on its own, out from what's around it, we could come up with a true thing, a true the- theological thing, but that not be what is being driven at in the text. So here's, I think, what happens as we initially read it. And it, it is a right thing, but there's more to it than that. We think really what it's teaching us about is how when governmental leaders fail to punish evildoers, evil spreads in a society. Now that's true. That is what happens, and that is exactly what he says, right? Because they fail to take action and to do justice, other people see that failure to take action or delayed, delayed justice. He's not even saying that justice doesn't happen, just that it's delayed for whatever reason. And then people do more evil. Their hearts grow more cold and more evil, and they act out on that depravity. And that's a true thing. That is exactly what happens. I heard a preacher once use an illustration to describe this, the way men do this. Um, And I thought it was a great illustration, so I'm going to share it with you, not only because it's a great illustration, but because it's a baseball illustration. And I just can't resist, right? I I love baseball illustrations, but this one's perfect. Remember the steroid era in baseball? Some of you don't, some of you do. But around 1999, early 90s, late uh, early 2000s, uh, McGuire, there was McGuire, and there was Sammy Sosa, and they were doing things no one had ever seen in baseball before. There was this home run race going on, and McGuire, he broke all these records. And then Barry Bonds even came after that, and he broke even more records. But before that ever happened, Ken Caminiti had written a little article about steroid use and how he had used steroids and how it was a problem in baseball and how he had gotten cancer. He actually ended up dying. Uh, because of his steroid use, nobody really paid attention. Um, and everyone knew what was going on. Even, <coughs> even the organization owners and coaches, everybody knew what was going on. But it was making so much money, no one was ever really punished. right? Nobody, They didn't punish them like they did Pete Rose, where they banned them from baseball for life. And because they didn't do that, what happened? Everybody started using steroids, even pitchers. That's why it's known as the steroid era. Because they didn't take action. Everybody saw the inaction and said, well, I'm going to do the same thing. Uh, And that's a perfect illustration. The result of inaction is that wickedness spreads. That's kind of, I think, a more surface level reading, but it is correct. But let's keep it in the context. This is a thought movement of Solomon regarding injustice. It is a powerful, influential 
man who's done evil and wickedness in his life. He never got justice. And then he dies, and it seems like he doesn't get justice. He's praised in his life, and he's praised in his death. And so the question is, and it's one that you've asked, if you're honest, who could have given that man justice when no one else did? Who could have? God. God could have given that man justice, and he didn't. He didn't give him justice in this life. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. And so it seems clear to me that Solomon is grappling with something that all of you have grappled with as well. Why is God delayed? Or why does he appear to not give justice in this life to those who deserve to have it? Why doesn't he punish those who practice injustice and the wicked? Sometimes they live. Sometimes the wicked live an incredibly happy life and become rich and powerful. And they have the life that many people always want. And then they die and nothing ever happens to them. Haven't you ever grappled with the problem before? If you're honest with yourself and you've asked yourself, God, why do you allow this? Why are you not doing something about it? Now, this is the perceived problem of injustice. It's just a perceived problem. And it may be that our perception about it, I believe, is off. And we could stop there with the questioning, just questioning God, wondering. Perhaps if you're not careful, that sense of justice that you have and what you perceive about God's inaction will lead you into sin. You begin to doubt God's goodness. You begin to doubt, is, is he even just or is he even there? Or is he even real? Because of the amount of injustice you see in the world. But you can't stop there. You don't want to stop there. You have to ask yourself the question, why? Why would God, a good, just God, not give justice to the wicked in this life? I think there's a twofold answer, and it reveals to us, I think, what Solomon's driving at. Twofold answer to this. Number one is that God is merciful and patient. God is merciful and patient. His delayed justice is meant as an opportunity for the wicked to repent of their wickedness. God's grace and mercy is meant to be an opportunity to the one who is wicked to come to their senses and repent of their doing wickedness and to do justice in the world. Romans 2.4 says this, Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So God's desire is that the wicked would turn from their wicked ways, turn from their sin, and that they would live because he's merciful and gracious. But second, God delays in punishing the wicked so as to reveal the absolute depravity of the human heart. Because we really don't think that we're that much of a problem. God's grace and his mercy 
reveals in the fallen world the absolute depravity of the human heart. You look at the text, you'll see what it says. It says it clearly. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, it does not say man comes to his senses and realizes how much of a sinner he is and how wicked he is. And though, So then he comes to God in remorse and repentance and he surrenders his life and forsakes his wickedness and does justice all his days. No. What does a man do? He sees that delay of justice, and he says to himself, I'm going to sin all the more. I'm going to rebel against God all the more. Man uses God's patience and his mercy as a license to sin, thus revealing the absolute depravity and hardness of the human heart, that in the face of great mercy and grace, we would use even that to sin all the more against God. Don't presume upon God's patience and kindness. That's what we do. Here's how it goes. Okay? It goes like this. Mankind, we see a man's sin. We see that this man is not immediately struck by a bolt of lightning. He's not killed instantaneously, but he goes on to live a good, happy life, never suffering the consequences. And, and here's what we do. We say, nothing happened to him. I think I'll follow suit. I'll do whatever my heart desires. I'll be evil, I'll be wicked, I'll do what I want. Nothing will happen to me either. Isn't this exactly what we see with the sin of Adam? Adam sinned the first, the first human, the head of the human race. He sins against God. He is judged in his wickedness and that he's expelled from the garden. He's the one, he's why it's empty east of Eden, right? Death spread to all men through Adam because we were in Adam when he sinned and we're born into this world with sinful nature. What do we do, though? We see, oh, look, Adam, he didn't die immediately. God didn't kill Adam. He covered his nakedness and he, he, he did expel him from the garden, which was bad, and he died later. But we don't see that as a warning. We see that as a license to sin. And that's what every one of Adam's descendants do. They recreate the original sin of the garden and they say, oh, God doesn't punish the wicked really in this life. And that's exactly what we see here in this text. That man is using God's mercy and his grace as an opportunity to harden their heart even more. When they should be repenting and running to God seeking forgiveness, they do the exact opposite. And so this perceived problem with uh, injustice, delayed justice, is not a problem with God at all. It's not a problem with God at all. It reveals further the depravity and the depths of the fallenness of the human heart that we would harden our heart against God and sin all the more. If you're here today and you are not a Christian and you are still living in rebellion and sin against God, do not take God's patience and His mercy toward you for granted. Every day that you're alive and every day that you breathe is a gift from God to repent. It's meant as a kindness to you to lead you to repentance. Don't use it as a license to sin against God. Don't presume that because the wicked are not immediately judged in their sin, that God doesn't care about justice. Don't presume that because people that are wicked live in this world, their whole life 
and go on and never judge. Don't presume that God doesn't care about justice and that the same thing is going to happen to you, that you're going to live a long, happy life in your rebellion against God. Don't presume that justice isn't coming for the wicked. Don't presume that justice isn't coming for you. It's coming. These are the first two movements of thought regarding injustice. There is the observation of injustice that we see in the world, and there is this perceived problem. The perceived problem of injustice is dangerous because it may lead us to the wrong conclusions. It may lead us to believe that God is somehow doesn't care about justice, but what in reality, justice delayed reveals the problem of the human heart. That God is merciful and gracious toward us. So the observation of injustice, then he moves in his thought to this perceived problem of justice delayed, that when justice is delayed, man doubles down in his sin nature and hardness and rebels against God. But now that brings us to verses 12 and 13. The surety of divine justice. The surety of divine justice. If you look back at your text, I'll read it to you again. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Well, the perception of injustice on God's part, or injustice in the world in general, that there is just injustice in the world in general, is wrong. There is divine justice. There is a surety of coming divine justice. And that's what we see in verses 12 through 13. If you look back at your text, it is there, staring you in the face. Now, there are two groups of people here in, this, in this, these verses, 12 and 13. Two groups. There are those who it will not go well with. They are those who do not fear God. Okay, so those who it will not go well with, those who don't fear God, There are those who it will go well with, those who fear God. And that's the only thing that separates these two groups in this passage. One group fears God, the other does not fear God. So what is the fear of God? Obvious question we have to answer, and we have many times in a variety of ways, so I'll try to make it fresh for you again. Fear of God is often spoken of as reverential awe, okay? And that's pretty good. But the more I thought about that, the more I thought that pagans have reverential awe for their gods. For instance, today, many Chiefs fans will have reverential awe of Patrick Mahomes. Right? That's all they'll be tweeting about. Look how he throws sidearm. Look how he scrambles and throws. He's the greatest. I mean, I've lived in Kansas City, so I know about the Mahomes worshipers. Okay? I'm, a, I'm well acquainted with the reverential fear and awe of Patrick Mahomes. Um, There's something more to the fear of God than that. The fear of God is reverential all, but it's more. My words here now. Fear of God is relational, awe-filled love, and joyful, duty-bound submission. Fear of God is relational, awe-filled, joyful, duty-bound submission. Let me try to explain that. A God-fearer. Someone who fears the Lord, believes God is good and that He is 
who he says he is, that he is good, that he is just, that he is worthy of all worship, honor, and praise, simply for the fact that he is God, he is the creator, and he is glorious in his being. But the being of God, who God is, compels the one who loves God to faithful obedience in this world to live according to God's ways. Wisdom literature, which Ecclesiastes is, is how to live in God's world, God's way, with him as the king and us following his ways. And so one who fears God, obeys God and pursues him, pursues justice, flees injustice and wickedness. It compels obedience because of a joyful duty to God. We also get this picture of, of, of what fearing God looks like to, by looking at what it doesn't look like. That's a, good, that's a good strategy. So we come to Romans chapter 3. We can see those who do not fear God. What do they look like? We read there in, thir- in 10, beginning, beginning of 10, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongue to deceive, the venom of asp is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And then the last phrase, there is no fear of God before their eyes. God-fearers live and wallow in wickedness, living in this world according to their own standards that change every other day. They lie, they steal, they cheat, they kill, they rape, they oppress, they abuse, and then they're praised when they die. But those that fear God, those that fear God live in God's world according to God's ways. The one that fears God beholds God for who he is as worthy of all worship, honor, and praise simply for being who he is. And that understanding of God, that love of God, compels the God-fearer to live in God's world God's way, to flee immorality, to flee sexual immorality, to flee hatred of the fellow man, to flee away from murder and theft and wickedness, and unfairness, and to flee injustice, and to pursue justice. That's a God-fearer. This is God's world, and a God-fearer loves God, and tries to live in God's world, God's way. I will give you just a couple more examples, using only the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants us to fear God, and to follow Him. This is what it means ultimately in this world to fear God is to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn from your sin, to pursue him all the days of your life. What does that look like according to Jesus? It looks like this. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, self-denial, not find your true self and pursue that which will make you happy. Deny yourself. And take up your cross and follow me. The cross, of course, is a method of execution. Deny yourself, be willing to die. 
follow me. And of course, following him means we live our life after the pattern of his life. Then he says, for whoever would lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? You can't give anything. The richest man in the world can't buy out of facing divine justice. And so Christ says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. He also says this in John 14, 23. So it involves self-denial, taking up one's cross, following Christ. But he says this, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Someone who fears God loves the Lord Jesus Christ. That love compels them to keep his word. Not the other way around. People get it wrong all the time. They think, I'll be good. I'll be a good boy or girl. I'll be a good man or a woman, and then God will love me. But there is, the, the exact opposite is true. We see the love of God, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and that vision of the love of God that Christ would die for our sins. Not his sin, but for ours. We see that great display of the love of God, and it melts our heart, and we love him back. We turn from our sins, and we turn to Christ. We're saved. We love him back. And when we love him back, from this act of love flows the obedience of Christ's words. That's one who fears God. That's the one who it will go well with. And he knows it. Look at your text. This is something that he knows. It's not that he's observed or he's made a reflection or I'm making a speculation here. He says, I know it. I know it will go well with them. Those that fear God. Well, what does that mean to go well with? That's the next question that you should ask when you're looking at that page of your Bible. What does it mean to go well with? Does it mean we get everything we ever wanted in life? Great happy marriage for all the days of my life. Obedient children forever that will only do me honor, never dishonor. I'll die without ever getting sick, happy and prosperous all the days of my life. Well, that's not what it means, obviously, right? Contextually, what does it mean? Well, what are we looking at here? We're looking at the death of a man who appears to have lived his whole life ruining other people's lives, being wicked. He never faced justice, then he dies. But in death, it doesn't go well with him. We're talking about death now. We're talking about final judgment. In death, final judgment. Those that fear God, it will go well with them. Those that don't fear God, it's not going to go well. Talk about an understatement of the century or of the past several millennia. But this is his artistic subtle ways. It's not going to go well. See, we think it, they got away with everything. We think there's no justice in the universe. And Solomon is telling us there is justice. It's appointed unto man to live once. We're told by the author of Hebrews, and after that comes judgment. We're talking about judgment. He's already introduced us to this idea of justice before and final judgment. In Ecclesiastes 3, if you turn over, you'll see it in chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. 
where he says this, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, where, where you would want to see in the courts, there would be justice, there's not, there's wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, well, that's in the religious sphere, even in that place, wickedness. But then he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. There is a time coming for justice. No matter what we see and what we perceive to be that there is injustice in the world, there's not. There is final justice. For those who fear God, we will stand before God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As our Lord and Savior, we will stand in His righteousness alone, and it will be well with us. God, God will bless us. We will be showered with imaginable pleasures and blessings and an inheritance that we can't even imagine. It will go well with us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those who do not fear God, those who will stand before Him on their own, there's only a fearful expectation of fiery judgment. It's not going to go well. It's not going to go well with you. Verse 12 tells us how our perceptions can be wrong. The evil man, the wicked man, he does evil a hundred times and he prolongs his days. And then we see that. That's frustrating. It looks to us as if God doesn't care about justice. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Then he pauses talks about those that it will go with. Hopefully all of you, if you love the Lord Jesus. But then he returns to them. It's not going to go well with them. So you think, did he get schizophrenic all of a sudden? Because he said, they sin a hundred times and prolong their life. But then he tells me, oh, but guess what? They don't prolong their life like a shadow. What happened? Well, I think this is it. This is what he's driving home. He's trying to say, look, in the world, sometimes the wicked prosper and they prolong their life in their wickedness. But come back to it, how they won't prolong their life like a shadow. Well, how can they prolong and not prolong? Here's the idea. I think it is a wonderfully artistic illustration that Solomon uses. When do shadows get long? When do they get long? When the sun's going down. So the sun starts to get down, go down, and your shadow will get longer and longer and longer. The sun is right on the horizon, and your shadow is very long. And then what happens in an instant? You can't even see it. It happens so fast. Your shadow's gone. The sun has gone down. And he's saying the same thing to the wicked. He's saying the same thing to us for encouragement, but to the wicked. And if you're here today and you aren't in Christ, he's saying to you, you might prolong your life a long time. You might even live a hundred years in your wickedness and have all of the pleasures of this world. And in your wickedness, you think you're prolonging your life, but in an instant, it's gone. You're going to die. You can't prolong your life. You can't beat death. And in death, final judgment. That's what he's telling us. And death, it will not go well with them. They can't prolong their life. It's appointed for man to die once and after that judgment. God will judge the wicked. There is a time for every matter. There is a time for judgment. <clears throat> the wicked don't get away with their wickedness. They don't get away with it. Those that the world celebrates, they don't get away with it. Though their life, it looks like they got away with it. They even die and they're honored in death. The world thinks that they got away with it, but they don't get away with it. 
There's justice in God's universe. And this is some good news for those of us, those of us that have faced injustice in our lives. And for you, if maybe you've been a victim of a perverse injustice. Have you been a victim, I wonder? Maybe a friend or a loved one of yours, and you think and you wonder they'll never be justice. They're never gonna, they're never gonna, it's never gonna be made right. That's good news for us. That's good news for you because there will be an accounting and there will be final justice. No one gets away with it. It's bad news, though. This is bad news for those who have perpetuated injustice in our society. For those who thought they got away with it. For those fathers who abandoned their children. Lived an entirely different double life. Their children never knew them. They start a new life somewhere else and they live and then they die and then they get buried and everyone praises them. There's justice coming for those young boys and girls. You think about Adolf Hitler. You just can't help but think about Adolf Hitler when you think about this, right? One of the most wicked men ever live on the face of the earth. Killing millions. Starting a world war. And at the end... We all had a big trial, and we saw justice served. No. Right, he kills himself. He kills himself. It appears he doesn't face any justice at all. And in the secular worldview, the humanist worldview, the materialist worldview where there is no God, he got away with everything. There was no justice. He suffered nothing for what he did. But this is not the reality of the universe. And if you're here today and you, and you aren't a believer, right? Maybe you came in here and you're agnostic. Your sense of justice tells you that can't be true. It tells you it cannot possibly be true about the universe. Because you want it. You can say that would be, that would be wrong. There's got to be justice. That's great news. There is eternal justice. It's my hope today that if you're here and you are a Christian, that you would understand that no matter what has happened to you in this life, that either that thing will be paid for in Christ or that person will stand before Christ in judgment and they'll pay for it themselves. Our God is just. And he will see that justice is done. And this is a great application for us that are Christians. Christians, we understand this truth, okay? We ought to be the most forgiving people. Well, that's what we ought to be known for. One of the things is that we are, we are easy to forgive. We're ready to forgive. We love to forgive. Because we understand this truth. Right? We understand that there will never be something that was, has been done, an injustice, a wrong done to us that will not be held accounted for. It will not, there will be an accounting for it. And so we're able to freely, to freely forgive. We should be forgiving of all people because we know that we deserve justice and God was gracious and merciful and he punished our sin in Christ. Because we know that, that our, that our God is gracious and merciful and he's just, we should be able to, to easily forgive. No matter what's been done to us, we ought to be able to forgive. 
Because we experientially, we not only know that knowledge, we experientially know, we know what it is to be forgiven. And we know how when we are forgiven, that in itself can be transformational. We not only have knowledge of God, we experience his forgiveness. How could we then not forgive? How could a Christian then ever not willingly, liberally, easily, joyfully forgive someone? It should never be so. And in doing so, we get to imitate our Father who is in heaven. The great, forgiving, merciful God. I think of all the sins that a Christian may commit, or a professed Christian may commit, other than apostasy and the going after other gods, a full-on denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think perhaps the greatest, this is my opinion, would be to commit the sin of unforgiveness. To hold someone's sin against them. To weaponize their wrong against you. To weaponize it for your own purposes. To hold it over against them. To hold some type of control as if, as if you're playing God over them. As if you will decide when they have atoned for what they have done. Your unforgiveness becomes a way for you to punish. In reality, your unforgiveness is, is simply this is a failure to believe true things about God. A failure to trust God. A failure to trust that He's good, that He is just, and that He will render appropriate justice in His time. And it puts your soul in jeopardy. It puts your soul in jeopardy. This is what Jesus, Jesus gave this great parable, the unforgiving servant. I'll summarize it for you. There was a man who had in, in, a debt he could not possibly pay back in a hundred lifetimes. His master came to him, he begged for mercy, and the master granted him forgiveness. He paid his debt, he forgave him. That servant then goes to the people that owed him, and you would think that he was forgiving, but that's not what he was. He went to that person in an abusive, wicked way and demanded restitution. He, remanded, he demanded what was due him. And word got back to the master. And of course, the master here is pictured as, as God. And to this, this, this wicked servant stands as a warning as he, is, as he will be cast out into the outer, outer darkness. How, how much of a warning could Christ ever give to people who would say that they're Christians? He's telling you, if you say you're a Christian and you don't forgive, you're not a Christian. And you'll be thrown out into the outer darkness, that place that will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brothers and sisters, you should listen to that desire for justice in your heart. I'm not saying don't. Just ignore it. Listen to it. But, but let it remind you of your heavenly Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Learn to trust them. Uh, learn to trust them that they will render justice in their time. This could be a difficult thing, no doubt. I understand that. But let us strive uh, to be forgiving. Let, let us listen to that sense of justice and let it drive us to the reality of our great God. Well, these are three 
movements of thought regarding the problem of injustice. We think there's injustice in the world, and Solomon, he walks us through a way to begin to think about it. He says, all right, let's make some observations. There's real injustice in the world. It looks like this, this stuff, is, these wicked people get away with everything. They're praised in life. They're praised in death. Observation valid. That's what it looks like. Second observation or flow of thought we see is that it seems like this creates a problem for us. Maybe God is unjust and God's failure to act actually increases the wickedness. So maybe it's God's fault. But that's not what it is, right? God reveals how gracious and merciful he is to us, but he also reveals the hardness of the human heart. God's mercy and his delayed justice is meant to lead you to repentance. But then we see, lastly, there is a surety of divine justice. That's verses 12 through 13. I want to press something home, that this desire for justice is built into every person, whether you're a Christian here today or you're not a Christian. You all have it. You can't escape it. It's part of being made in the image of God. I believe it's a general grace of God that we retain that after the fall. It's a, it's a gift meant to lead us, I think, and drive us to, to God and to His character and nature to understand that. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, I want to take you through, hopefully, uh, very quickly, Immanuel Kant's argument for God from justice. All right? I think it is logically impeccable. And this is where he starts. He starts with this sense of justice that everyone has. You could call this a Romans 1 type of knowledge. There is a knowledge that all mankind have about God, and we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. But no matter what we do in suppressing the truth about God, we can't escape our need and desire for justice. You just can't do it. And that's why Sproul said, steal his wallet. That's why all of you want, when something wrong is done to you, you want it to be made right. But for there to be justice, for that to be a real desire, for that to be real, for that to mean anything, we have to survive death. There has to be eternal life. Because we know what Psalm has observed, we know that to be true. People live and die in this life, and they never face the consequences for what they've done. They get away with it in this life. For there to be real justice, there must be eternal life. And that, and that you can't escape it, is screaming out at you that that's true. Well, for that to be true, for there to be real justice in eternal life, there is another condition that must exist, and that there must be an eternal judge to render justice. We, of course, say that there is, and that, is, that this is God, and our consciences testify to us of this fact. That's why you feel guilty when no one sees the bad things you've done. No one sees, no one knows but you. You can't escape the sense of guilt. Again, Romans 1, knowledge written on your heart. There must be an eternal judge. There must be eternal life. There must be an eternal judge. Third, the judge must be himself perfectly just. Because if there was an eternal judge, but he was not perfectly just, well, then, then there wouldn't be justice in the next life either. He must be perfectly just. Now, for, there, for him to be perfectly just, he has to have perfect knowledge. That means this eternal perfect judge has perfect knowledge. means he has knowledge of all things. He knows all the facts. There's nothing you could say, well, if you had more information, you'd have made a different ruling. No, this judge knows everything about you, everything about 
everyone else in your life and everything in that scenario, he knows everything. He has perfect knowledge. But not only does he have infinite perfect knowledge, he must have the power to carry out justice. For there could be such a thing as a God who has perfect knowledge, is a perfect judge, but he's lacking power. There must be an omnipotent, eternal, perfect judge. And this judge exists. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. Nothing less than a morally perfect, omniscient, immutable, eternal, and omnipotent God can ensure that our moral sense of obligation is meaningful. No God, no justice. What a gift God has given us in the sense of justice that we all have. And if we think carefully about what it reveals, it reveals to us the nature of God. Listen to that desire of justice that you have. Listen to what it tells you. There is a God. He is perfectly good and He is perfectly just. But also, if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, pay close attention. This perfectly good judge has a name. It's been revealed to us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 17, 30-31, Paul preaching at Ephesus. Yeah. Acts 17, 30-31, listen to what he says. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere. Athens. There we go. Multiple thoughts. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by rising him from the dead. You all will stand before Christ. Everyone. He is the judge that your soul is testifying to you about. Your conscience is screaming at you. There is a judge and you will stand before him. And he has a name. And his name is Jesus Christ. Christ himself said it. Listen to what he said in John 5, 21-24. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ calling out to you, you will be judged, turn from your sin, believe on him, and you will not face judgment. He'll forgive you. He doesn't even ask you to work it off. Turn from your wickedness. Come to Christ. You're going to be judged by him. Repent and believe the gospel. And there are many here today that I know that you are not Christians yet. And it is my desire, and you've heard me plead with you over and over, Sunday after Sunday. Don't presume upon God. You heard me say that last time, but here we are saying it again. Don't look at the wicked and their lack of getting justice and think you still have time. 
you're going to live to be a hundred and do whatever you want. And then perhaps one day you'll surrender your life to Christ. This very day you may stand before this judge. This very day may be the day of reckoning where you will give an account for every single word you've ever said, every thought you've ever had that you thought was private, everything you ever did. The day of justice might be today. So while you have today, right now, where you sit, don't even wait till I'm done. Don't even wait till Philip's done. Right now, repent of your sin and run to Christ and ask Him to save you. And He will. He'll do it right now. I pray and I hope that you would. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Repent. Believe upon Him today. Justice exists in this universe. Our God is just. Thank God for that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Solomon, he knows, he knows us in ways that maybe we don't know ourselves, his wisdom and the way that he can unfold before us and help us to search even the deepest things of our own hearts things that maybe we don't even talk to other people about, the frustrations that we have in seeing injustice in the world, oppression. And maybe we even begin to think that you're not just. God, guard us and protect us from those thoughts. Protect protect us from thinking incorrect thoughts about you, from, from interpreting your mercy and your patience with the wicked. Protect us from seeing that as a license to sin. And there are many here today, God, that I know that they're not Christians. And I also know I'm powerless to do anything about it. I've shared with them the gospel, Lord. And so I pray and I ask that you do only what you can do, which is save a sinner. Open their eyes. Give them a sight of the Lord Jesus Christ and all his greatness, his goodness, his mercy, his justness. Help them. Show them who they are before this all-powerful, holy, just, and good God who would love us so much He would die for our sins. Open their heart to see this great truth. Grant them repentance and eternal life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.